0: I don't know if you're like me, but I, or if you grew up around here in this greater Rockford area or not, but I, I love our community. I love this place called Northern Illinois, bordering beautiful Southern Wisconsin. I, I have fond memories of this place. As a kid, I, I don't know what it is, but places sometimes can have a, have a smell to them. I, I, I mean, I, I have distinct memories of this creek area that I would play in as a boy all the time, right down off of Spring Creek, not off of Spring Creek, don't get me wrong, behind Eisenhower Middle School. There was a creek back there we lived in, we lived near there and I would ride my bike down the road past all these neighbor houses and play in this creek as a kid and I just remember just the smell of some kind of bush or plant or flower that I never was able to peg. And we moved away and, lived in several different places, and came back nine and a half years ago, and we were walking as a family through our neighborhood in the ledges, and there it was. And I said, kids, do you smell that? And am like, what is wrong with dad, mom? <laughs> I, and I don't know what it is, but there's just this, there's just, there's this love of a place. And I've, I've been able to live in Texas. I mean, I like the barbecue, but uh, I lived in California. It just smelled like smog, really. Uh, Great Britain, three, four summers in Michigan, but man, I love Winnebago County, I love Boone County, my wife was raised in southern Wisconsin, this is home, and it matters, place matters. And I wanted to, with with a couple weeks I had to just kind of one-off sharing I get to do with you, I want to address two topics. One was I did the week before Communion Sunday was to remind you of God's love for you. Just a core central theme of the biblical message in the gospel that I just think was worthy for you to hear, to be reminded of, to be ministered to by the second and the one this week before in the new year we jump into 2 Samuel is the importance of place. I want to hit on place. I didn't move to this area because I was convinced it was the best place in the world to live. I don't have a ton of evidence of where that might be, but it's not why I love this place. I moved here because it is my home. This is my place. And I want to talk to you about the importance of place this morning. And I want to show you from the Bible that place matters. To God, it was central to the ministry of Jesus And it should be central to our ministries and lives as well. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into our topic together. Father, minister to us as we reflect on this larger biblical theological theme of place, of neighborhood. Help us to think about that rightly and and live differently because of it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to give you two biblical theological truths... And then I want to reflect on that for that third point where we just kind of extended reflection on application for our lives. Here's the first. When Jesus commands the church to love your neighbor, he is talking not only about a people, he's actually talking also about a place. Now you remember King Jesus gave the church three commands. Love God, that's upward. Love neighbor, that's outward. And love one another, that's within the church, that's inward. That's inward. That's just a real clean way of seeing the three ways that God expects us to love as he loved us. But Jesus gives us command to love your neighbor, and I want to I explain that. The Bible defines neighbor of, of God's people. And I'm, I'm thinking even just a bow all the way back to the Old Testament. The Bible defines Neighbor for God's people as not only the covenant community with whom they lived and worked and worshipped, like think of Israel in the Old Testament. It wasn't just, and that would be even cleaner just to make it just Israel. Right? You're in this local region. The Bible went beyond their own people to this in Leviticus 19 verse 34. But also, quote, the stranger who sojourns with you. God was intentional to throw that in. The command is not based on likability, by the way. Leviticus 19 isn't saying like your own people and every love your own people and anybody else that are likable. He says love your neighbor, which by definition includes those who are with you. It's not based on likability, it's based on location. Those who live with you. Note that word with. That's important. It'll come up again. Jesus makes this even clearer when he extends the category of neighbor with the command to love your enemies. So if you were trying to think, well, I'm just going to love those that are lovable and likable. Well, that wouldn't work either. There's actually going to be people with whom I coexist that I'm also commanded to love. Proof of this is when Jesus was pressed by a cocky legal expert in Luke chapter 10 to give an example of neighbor. And what example did he give? You may have heard of the parable. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. The person with whom you share a place is your neighbor. It's defined by your place. The Good Samaritan, remember the story, all these others are walking by this injured person and the Samaritan comes up to a Jewish person with whom he is supposed to be an enemy. And because it's in his location, he responds. And Jesus says, that is love. Our neighbor is anyone in our physical or geographic proximity. So if you're, asked, if you're trying to answer the question, who was my neighbor? You might have to add the question, well, then where are they? Because location Matters. So we could even summarize Jesus' command to love your neighbor this way The command to love your neighbor is ultimately a command to love your neighborhood. And now you'd be getting both the gathering together of both people and place. That's key to that. If you're leaving out place, you're missing clear biblical language that requires just that, going all the way back to the Old Testament and even in the New. Now, here's the second point i want to give you biblically and theologically before we flesh it out and it's a little thicker to understand it's talking about the relationship between both the father and the son in their eternal relations but also jesus with the world but hold on it'll make sense in a minute here's here's what I, here's my summary the relations within the godhead and between jesus in the world reveal a focus on place I put in your notes a few verses from John chapter one, and I want to show those to you. Notice verses one and two in John one. And so much theological language about the divinity of Jesus and his uh, uh, primacy over all created things. But I underlined a few things I want you to notice. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Notice that with God. There's that with again. It's like Leviticus 19, the stranger who sojourns with you. And if you, did, if you thought it was just kind of a mild thing to say, verse 2 in John 1 repeats it again. He was with God in the beginning. So if the Bible's repeating something, it's emphasizing it. What does this withness mean? Something to say that the Son is with the Father, which emphasizes presence... Physical location, he was with God in the beginning. The relationship, the, the, the harmony that exists between them, the location of the Father and the Son was the same. Now, skip down to verses 10 to 11 in John 1. I, again, they're in your notes. And you really see two verses that speak to the same thing, with the second explaining the first. Verse 10 He, Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. What a remarkable diagnosis of the brokenness of our created world. The creatures don't even know their creator. Like how offended would you be if your kids didn't recognize you when you came home? Or how hurtful would it be if you're a grandparent and your kids don't recognize, your grandkids don't remember you? Now, double that and multiply it by a million, how broken must we be that creatures don't know the one who created them? But then he says something significant in verse 11, and I underlined it for you in your notes, that his own, which he mentions twice, he says, verse 11, he, Jesus, came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Now this is—it gets a little nerdy, but it, hold on with me. English doesn't have, it's not a, it's not a gendered language that we can de- designate. But in Greek, there's actually three different genders. Masculine, feminine, and neuter. The first, his own, is neuter. The second, his own, is masculine. All of that to say, this is what verse 11 is saying. He, Jesus, came to his own creation... And even his own creatures, his own people, did not receive him. Notice the emphasis on not just people, but place. God came to his own place. The world he had made. That is a fascinating focus on place. The, cre- the creator is coming to his Creation. God's focus on his created world teaches us something important. We fall into real danger when we separate spiritual things from the created physical world. There's actually heresies in the early church that did just that. They spiritualized in such a way that they denied physical creation. God came not only to a people praise be to god but he came to a place in fact by the end of the story in the book of revelation god is literally coming to the place he had fully intended from the beginning to be a dwelling made for all his people god came to the home he had made for you and for me and for him can feel that importance of place Last one, verse 14 in John 1. The Word became flesh. We've spoken on this before a few years ago now when we worked through the Gospel of John, but that is a very harsh, base way of speaking about a person. It it, it speaks of their most physical reality. You don't say man or woman or person or dude, right I mean you're you're talking about them as you like look at look at that piece of tissue like that's just a weird way of speaking. like why would God, when he's describing the incarnation, describe it in such harsh, almost medical terms? Notice the physicality is the focus. there's also resonances as a to what would later be is that that word is the closest to a word like carcass, which projects the reality that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve with his ultimate goal of dwelling and uniting us to the creator with his death on the cross. But just feel the, 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 the physicality of that depiction. The word became flesh. Jesus fully Entered into our physical reality in every way. And did what? Verse 14, and made his dwelling among us. How many times have we seen with us or among us in these few verses? What does that say? Jesus became our neighbor. So there are those two truths. When Jesus commands the church to love neighbor, he's talking about not just a people but a place. And even within the relation of God the Father and God the Son or the relationship between Jesus and the world, place matters. Now what does that mean for us today? I would want to say that the thrust of the command to love your neighborhood is this. Grace seeks a place. The grace of God was never just a theory, never just a good idea, not just an idea to believe or a doctrine to hold to, not a marketing tactic, not even just a biblical truth to articulate. The grace of God was the incarnation of God in a place. It was the physical Jesus coming and relating, living and dying for physical people, with the full intention of dwelling with us forever. Welcome to Christmas. Welcome to the celebration of Advent. And welcome to the gospel message. And if we're hearing it rightly, welcome to the mission of the church. That we, the, notice it didn't say the spirit of Christ. What is the church called? What's the metaphor for the, what, for the church? Is it? Are we the spirit of Christ? Are we just a fellowship? We're the body of Christ. Isn't that interesting? A physical denotion. We are the body of Christ. Who our mission display God's love and grace and truth where we live. And I want to reflect then for a few minutes on the relation between Jesus' command to love our neighborhood and the contemporary American community in which most of us live. I'm no expert on some of the things I'm going to talk about, but I'd like to wrestle with them for us. Most sociologists would say that America is the only suburban nation in the world. What I mean by that is following World War II, Americans migrated from inner cities and from rural areas based upon the help of 13 million soldiers after World War II, receiving loans, low-cost loans from the federal government. And they migrated, as one author puts it, in a collective effort to live a private life. Americans wanted well-stocked homes and freedom from uncomfortable interaction with the obligations of others. And if anything, after 75-ish years, we would have to say that in this country they succeeded. What cemented this move was single-use zoning ordinances that were copied and enforced all over this country, prohibiting the stuff of community from intruding into residential areas. In in subdivisions of post-World War II America, there is nothing to walk to. There is no place to gather. The physical staging of our neighborhoods virtually ensures immunity from community. So walk with me through our neighborhoods. Not not all, some living in rural environments, maybe some living more directly in a a neighborhood in a city proper, but just think about what you normally see in this greater area. First, that single-use zoning, right? all the houses not with storefronts and other things but all the houses jam-packed in one place which requires you to drive everywhere would you want a pizza with single-use owning with all the onions on one piece no one would talk to that person (laughs) and all the black olives on another and all the pepperoni on another is that all you want your pizza? Well, that's what you've got your neighborhoods with all the homes in one location and all the commercial in another location and all the industrial in another location. So it's all separated and limited access can happen without a much greater effort. Think about cars. How much space is wasted with parking lots? Parking lots everywhere. And most humans have experienced life and community on foot. Only in the last recent few generations have we lived a life where everything is experienced by car. Think about the way, the the speed of things. How your community is known with little flashes driving by at 35, hopefully maybe 45 or 55, have a huge, much bigger region that you can cover and little nooks and crannies are unknown. When we lived in Scotland, for example, for three years, we only hired a car, as they would say, if we were going on vacation. Well, that would be a few times total, maybe five or six times in three years, we rented, hired a car. The rest of the time we walked everywhere you just get to know a place you get to know what people you get to know which side of the sidewalk to go on because there's crumbles on the other side you get to see people in all these organic ways that will not happen in buicks and chevrolets it just won't think about our homes we've moved from building front porches to beautifying back decks What do we put on the front? A massive garage, at least three cars, to make sure there's a lot of gap between me and any of my neighbors. And a beautiful back fire pit sitting there for my own entertainment with the people of my choosing because the last thing I want to do is have to talk to a neighbor. How has that worked? Do people feel more bonded? Do they feel more secure? Has it lowered rates of anxiety and depression? Is socialization happening easier? Again, just think about, in at least the Western world, we are a novum, a unique reality that no one else has experienced quite like us. What have been some of the results? One would be the increase of something called a non-place. That's actually a technical term. I've got a few books on this. It's a fascinating area of topic. A non-place is an area where your purposeful intention is to be function and not people. So, like, here's an example. Waiting for an airport. Waiting for a flight in an airport, right? Who wants the guy that wants to talk to them on the seat next to that? Like, you're thinking, why is this guy talking to me? Right? Or who's going to be willing to start a conversation with somebody? Like, hey, where are you going? Like, you would probably feel this sense of, why is... He or she talking to me this is a non-talking place you've got all these people 100 200 300 right there but you're in a non-place so you're not supposed to talk here's what's happened in our culture of isolation we've expanded the number of non-places my kids still give me a hard time if i'm at schnooks and i asked the lady right so hey what you know You got a long day. I mean, do you get off soon? Kids are like, "My goodness, Dad, what are you doing?" You're like, they think you're like, "Are you waiting in the parking lot for the poor guy?" I'm like, "He's a human, and maybe his feet are tired, and he's scanning my food that I'm buying for your mouths." And while he's doing, I can at least say, "What's your name?" You worked here long, how's it going? Because no, because I guess the shopping market's a non-place, but of course now we just replace workers with self-scan, so I really don't have to see people. Just think about how many places you go to week in and week out would by definition be non-places. Talking would be considered rude or a little bit inappropriate. Think about how that limits normal human action. Strangers are to be feared, people are to be avoided, not befriended, Safe zone shrinks to your yard, and get this, anybody raised previous generations, you have to actually set up a play date for your kids to play with somebody. I mean, when I was growing up, I would get on my little red BMX, and I would just ride to friends' houses. I don't know if you know Rich and Sharon Homan, I spent way too many hours in their house, as they themselves would say. Several times, Mrs. Holman, they're they're at Fairhaven now, sweet brother and sister of ours in this church. They They would say, Mickey, are you ever going home? I'm like, well, it depends. What's for dinner, Mrs. Holman? And if she said it was her meatballs, I'm all in. I'm like, would you call my mom and tell her that you're inviting me over for dinner? Okay, but tomorrow night you need to eat at home. Yes, Mrs. Holman. Right? If my mom was going to find me, she'd be calling neighbors, friends. I might be three miles away. Imagine that today. Like, Just imagine today riding your bike three miles from home without trackers or heli- <laughs> helicopters flying over, security guys with little things in their ears looking for the kids who are simply doing what? Playing with friends and their bikes in neighborhoods. Now we have to set up a play date. Seniors have no help unless it's a family member. We even have to outsource care for our seniors by having senior citizen communities. Isn't that interesting? Since there's no actual community around them, we have to make a community that is paid for so that they finally get somebody to care for them. As if the teenage kids in the neighborhood can't mow a yard or can't rake leaves or can't bring in groceries or shovel a driveway. Here's another fact that's kind of scary. Statistically, once mobility became the norm in the United States, about 20% of the population changes residence every year. Hear this about the United States. This is, so it might not be the statistical average in our community or where you live, but statistically, in the US, every year, 20% of people change where they live. That's, that's hard to build community in that. It's hard to be known and have friends going way back. When I go visit to bring them up again, Rich and Sharon Holman, Sharon Holman and Rich have known me since I was five. For almost 45 years, they have known me, and I have known them. And when I sit and talk with them and pray with them, it is like old friends. They know my family and my family's family and all my friends because we have been bonded for moving toward half a century. How do you do that if you're living somewhere else all the time? This leads to a third result is that the public characters common in towns of old get replaced. Who are the people that know all the stuff in a place? Maybe more common in a small town. Now it's just the malls or the restaurants, right? It's all marketed now. It's not the people, it's not the long timers, the The moms and dads, the grandmas and grandpas of a community that shepherd the next generation, that remind it and tell it of its history. I don't know if you know my uncle Ron. Ron Wade, he uh, was a state rep for 30 years and probably been on every possible board you can imagine. His family moved to this area just shy of 200 years ago. And if you want to see somebody who loves Boone County, it is my uncle. And my kids probably have a master's degree now in the history of Boone County and Belvedere because of riding through town and every farmer What happens when Ron is not there? Who passes that on? Are there neighborhoods and communities where there's none of that? To pass that on? This is biblical language. The Apostle Paul talking about communion. uh, What I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. Where is that? Multi-generations, loving a place and the people in it. Finally, what happens in this design of a culture is the loss of of informal public places for life together. Increasingly, citizens in America are encouraged to find their relaxation, their entertainment, their companionship, and even safety almost entirely in the privacy of their homes, which have become more a retreat from society than connecting to it. Urban development in America is pushing the individual toward the line separating proud independence and sad isolation. Have we crossed that line into sad isolation? Has your independence pushed you into isolation? Do you know loneliness is through the roof in our culture? Anxiety and depression through the roof in our culture? one author dolores hayden says this she makes the case strongly this is what she says quote americans have substituted the vision of the ideal home for that of the ideal city so you used to want to focus on having the best community possible how can we invest in our community but over the last at least 75 years it has all turned to our homes with the purchase of even larger houses on even larger lots, in even more lifeless neighborhoods, that is not a matter of joining community as it is retreating from it. Now contrast that, if you've traveled at all, with the cafe in Paris. Or the pub in London. Or the Biedergarten in Germany. Those aren't just restaurants, like going to B-dubs and watching a game or going to Jessica's and having a meal. Those are organic dwelling places where community comes together. How do we do that around here now? Probably by entertainment, which is way more work, way more cost. We all gotta have a perfect house, because usually whoever is coming, we assume the queen is coming to, or the king, right? So we gotta have a perfectly clean house, You got to have a meal. It's got to be scheduled three weeks out versus after work. I mean, when we lived in St. Andrews, it would literally be, I would walk by the central pub and inside like, clink, I'd hear clink. And I'd walk in with my bear's hat. I really fit in the British culture really well. With my Chicago bear's hat and my flip flops. And there I was with everybody from the community. And I might have not, not one pint or any food at all. But in there was the people from the community. And you could be in there for 45 minutes, or you could be there for four hours. Because it was an informal public place for life together. Where is that now? Ray Oldenburg talks about three places that are essential for a healthy community, and he ranks them. And I have that in your notes there. The, the, what he calls the first place is the home. That's the place for prospering. Think of the young family. Think of the child. Think of the elderly that needs to be warm and a place to sleep and a place for food. The home is the first place, essential to a healthy human. The second place he calls is work. That's the place for production. If the home is for prospering, work is for production. So you contribute, you earn income, you serve in some capacity for the greater good. But the third place is the informal place of public life, the place for public interaction. Oldenburg defines it this way. The third place is a generic designation for a great variety of public places that host the regular, voluntary, informal, and happily anticipated gatherings of individuals beyond the realms of home and work. Where is that in he- How now? Your backyard? Do people have access to that? If somebody would swing by, how would you feel? Where does that happen? I was talking to somebody in our church who works in the food industry. He was saying that the fast food restaurants, when they were designed 25, 30 years ago, assumed 75% of people would eat in the restaurant and 25% would do drive-thru. That is totally switched. 75% of almost all the fast food places in Roscoe Rockton is drive through only 25%. So they're way downsizing hiring for cleaning trays and wiping tables, because they don't need to. And they're upticking, I mean, Chick-fil-A knew this and actually has two runways for food. I mean, you got two, two lines, but they, got, they meet you out there, so the line is short because you got hordes of people running through because there's no informal gathering. Brothers and sisters, how do we love our neighbors and love our neighborhoods when we're in our Chevys and around our cool fire pits in the backyard and our kids do not know how to socialize with other people? It's not an option that we can redo roads necessarily and change zoning laws. We need God's mercy, we need his cleverness, to think about what it means to love our neighborhoods now, which is gonna look different than if we were in central London, or if we were living around the corner from a cafe in Paris, or if we were the manager of a beer garden in Berlin. Let me give you three thoughts of application to this that I would love for you just to be thinking about in your own lives as Christians, as neighbors, as co-workers, as store owners, as city planners, as county board members for human flourishing. Number one, place matters. We've seen in scripture, it matters. Remember the biblical story. God created an uncultivated garden That he commanded humans to cultivate. The word culture comes from cultivate. Same root. And what is the image of that garden in Revelation? It's a garden city. You think about that? Like God intends for us to go from an uncultivated garden to a garden city. Again, don't think city like a mega city. Think of just a culture, a town, a small town with people talking in a school, in a playground, in a beautiful park, in a walking path, and people talking on front porches. That could be in a town of 2,000 or 2 million, but it's cultivated. Place matters. It matters to God. It matters for human flourishing and it should matter to us as Christians. The second would be, and I think this stems from love your neighborhood command, is cultivate your place. Whether that's rural Boone County, or Rockford, my hometown where I grew up, Roscoe, Rockton, South Beloit, or Clinton, Wisconsin, Beloit, Wisconsin, Janesville, wherever, Machesney Park, Loves Park, wherever you're living, Cultivate. There's that genesis image. It. Cultivate your place with purpose, with beauty, and with humanity in mind. And last, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. But I think ultimately what our Lord was also trying to say is love your neighborhood. That you've been sent there Even in that same hometown that I grew up in, this greater Rockford area, with the scents and smells that I remember as a young boy, this is my neighborhood. And I am called to love the Lord my God and to love my neighborhood as myself. And I would hope that as Christians, we would think winsomely and beautifully about how to do that well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the be- beautiful message of the gospel. And you loved this place. You, you made it and called it good. And you designed us to be a people in a place. And when you speak about the beautiful new creation of all things, it is both a people in a dwelling place with God. Of all Humans living today, it should be Christians that love place as much as you do and that cultivate place as you've commanded. Help us to love our neighborhood. Help us to let the grace of God manifest itself in the physical ways that we see Jesus embodying in his own life and ministry. And thank you that he came to our neighborhood and invited us to be his friends and help us to live that way with renewed understanding new biblical lenses to see the importance of place in the way in the places that we live pray all of this in Jesus name Amen